Bibles to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. Now, I've entitled this message, When Underdogs Win. <laughs> has nothing to do with what's happening later. All right, so you can't get any hints uh, about what to do between now and then, you know, because we don't believe in y'all placing bets and wasting God's money on that stuff. Okay, just checking. All right. Now, I do have to mention something, though. Uh, had, had Denver gotten into the Super Bowl, I had told some friends of mine that had they got in the Super Bowl, I would have worn Tebow's jersey today. Just thought I'd mention that. But shucks, I didn't get a chance to do it. <laughs> Genesis chapter 14. We are learning a lot about faith in the life of a person named Abraham, who is at this time still called Abram. And uh, last week we saw something of the nature of his, of his, uh, hu- uh, of his humility, of his humble character. But as is the case with every believer in Jesus Christ, humility is only one character. Uh, uh, one characteristic of many that we are to have as believers in Jesus Christ. And yet, none of these characteristics really will contradict each other, as we see in the person of, of Abraham today. So, consider that the circumstances as we enter into this chapter will lead Abram to bring forth a, a, another characteristic that we need to really see and, and examine today. In Genesis 1, uh, I'm sorry, Genesis 14, verse 1, it says, And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariach, king of Elasar, Kedor Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that these made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemeber, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. All these were joined together in the vale of Sidim, or Sidim, which is the salt sea. You know it as the Dead Sea. Verse 4, Twelve years they served Kedor Leomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year came Kedor Leomer and the kings that were with him, and smote the Rephaims in Ashtaroth Karnaim, and the Zuzims in Ham, and the Emims in Shaveh Kiriataim, and the Horites in their Mount Sair, unto El Paran, <coughs> which is by the wilderness. And they returned and came to Enmishpat, which is Kadesh, and smote all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites that dwelt in Hazazon Tamar. And there went out <coughs> the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that, uh, the same as Zoar, and they joined battle with them in the vale of Sidim, with Kedor Leomer, the king of Elam, and with Tidal, king of nations, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariak, king of Elasar, four kings with five, which literally means four against five. And the vale of Sidim was full of slime pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there, and they that remained fled to the mountain, and they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their victuals, and went their way. By the way, uh, in, the so- in the south, victuals is actually pronounced vittles. Just thought I'd mention that. Verse 12, and they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, and dwelt in Sodom, and his goods and departed. I really don't know which team is the underdog or which team is the favorite in that big game this afternoon. But I would venture to say that for those who don't have a stake in the Super Bowl because your team's not in it, would probably choose the underdog. 
Now I say that because I, I did a little research on, on the percentage of people who choose the underdog when, when their particular loyalties are not having to be challenged. And uh, one, one uh, report said that uh, <clears throat> uh, 80 to 90% of people actually choose the underdog. Uh, another uh, report actually was a little more specific, about 81%. So uh, that's still a high number of people that would normally choose the underdog. Choose the guy that is, that is supposed to lose hopes, in hopes that they would win. Now, maybe I'm wrong in making that particular assessment, but... Then again, I grew up watching one of my favorite cartoons entitled Underdog. Anybody remember Underdog? Okay, look at all the old people. Raise their hands. Is he still around, by the way? I guess in a cartoon network and stuff like that. You know, with that squealy little voice. Do not fear. Underdog is here. You know. All right. Sorry about that, Chief. Now, <clears throat> contrary to that opinion, seriously now, <laughs> it's kind of hard after that to be serious. But anyway, contrary to that opinion is a world that is continually growing more and more evil in its approach to the underdog, the underprivileged, the underfed and the undernourished. The underclothed, the underappreciated. Oppressive societies and cultures and nations and governments go to war, oftentimes with the full intention of enslaving others to serve their dastardly, immoral, and shameful lusts. And while some wars can be justified, the roots of war remain the same. As we enter into chapter 14, we arrive at the first recorded war. In the scriptures, mentioned in the scriptures, again, the first recorded war mentioned, as well as the first recorded war in history. And while I'm sure there may have been warlike skirmishes taking place uh, since the time of the fall of man, this account reveals war in a significantly larger scale. Since the fall of man, there has to be war. There was a little war between Cain and Abel. And Cain killed his brother Abel. Since the fall of man, hatred toward man has grown. To the extent that now, with, with so many races and so many peoples, forgetting the very fact that we came from one ancestor, we go to war to destroy Because we can't find any good in others. The consequences of the fall of man to its furthest extent when you think about it. It must be said that wars do come from the fallen state of man and from the lusts that actually war in the members of the human race. This is something that James points out in his, in his letter to the church when he writes in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and he says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? He's asking the question. Listen to what he asks. From where do wars and fightings come from among you? Where, where, where is it coming from, in other words? Come they not, hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? The lusts? The carnal desires that come out of your members to have more, to covet what others may have, you see. You lust, he goes on to say in verse 2, you lust and have not. You, you, you kill and you desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lusts. Now, I want you to think about something. James is not giving us some kind of a, of a, of a moral uh, lesson within a history lesson. 
James is speaking to the church. He's speaking to believers in Jesus Christ. And he is saying, listen, we need to deal with this attitude that is inside of you of lusting after things without considering the motives in which you ask. But it has become for us the very root problem worldwide as to why we have war. As to why there are these oppressive nations that put people in slavery today. People of their own kind. And what is even more sobering is that even peaceful nations have to learn the act of war or the art of war in order to fend off and resist attackers. In the very best idealistic sense, that's what we as a nation have to do. Our nation. We're to be people of peace, but we need to be armed to protect that peace. All because of the fall of man. But the real purpose of of this chapter is not so much to record the facts of a particular war in history. Above all else, the purpose is to show the courage of Abram and his faith. The Lord had made rare promises to Abram, and Abram believed God. Remember now that Abraham doesn't have any children whatsoever, and yet what did God say? Out of you, I will make a great nation. Out of you. No children and a wife that is barren, but out of you. And he believed God. He didn't know how God was going to do it, but he believed God. And he trusted God. And he trusted God even against all odds, because now he faces war. Not of his own doing. He is brought into this war because of his nephew Lot. And any time there is war, there is that possibility of death. Yet Abram believed God. The marks of Abram's courageous faith as he faced the circumstances of war are the marks needed by believers today. We are constantly facing the struggles of life and attempting great things for God, which I hope you're doing. Are you attempting great things for God? Now don't, be afraid, don't be ashamed to, to, to answer that. We need to be attempting great things for God. We need to be stepping out in faith every day of our lives, wherever we go. Are you attempting great things for God? I should bring Pastor Tom back out because, you know, he's the one that makes sure that you guys answer. When he says good morning, you know, he starts with three people. And then he says, that's only three people? How about it? You know, let's do that again. Are you tempting great things for God? Okay, that's good. Now don't lie. If you, if you are attempting great things for God, good. But if you said that, make sure that you say it and then do it. Amen? All right, so we face, listen, we all as believers in Jesus Christ face these struggles and these trials of life. And while we are attempting these great things for God, but as we are doing so, we need the same kind of courageous faith that, that Abraham had. We need that. That's why we need to examine what he does here. In our text today, we have a confederation of four kings that represent city-states from the area of the Euphrates River, which is east of where Abram is, northeast of where he is right now. And uh, they go against a confederation of five kings, which represent the city-states of the lower Jordan Valley, which borders the Dead Sea, which we know, you know, as, as we read, it's called the Salt Sea here, but it's the Dead Sea. Those of you who have been to Israel know where that is, uh, south of, of uh, uh, the southern or going to the southern part of, of Israel. Now, the Eastern Confederacy was headed by a man named Kedor Laomer, king of Elam. Now, Elam, uh, biblically speaking, would later be the area of Persia. But for us today, Persia is the area of the nation of Iran. So this is 
from where they come. But along with him are three other kings. Amraphel, king of Shinar. Now we've met uh, or seen the word Shinar before, Shinar, which is actually the land of Babylon. We called it the plains of Shinar, where the Tower of Babel was. So Amraphel was the king of Shinar, the king of Babylon, actually. And there are some archaeologists who still to this day believe that Amraphel is Hammurabi, who was the king at that time who actually uh, wrote out this code of Hammurabi, which which, uh, we don't have the time to go into it, but much of what is written in the code of Hammurabi Hammurabi actually uh, substantiates the truths of the Bible. So that, that's a good thing to know, uh, but we'll have to deal with that at another time. Then there's Ariok, the king of Elisar, and Elisar was probably a city-state of Babylon or near Babylon, or it may have been also of the area of Assyria. And then Tidal, king of Goim, is mentioned. Goim is uh, the word that is used for nations, a very general word used for nations. Uh, in the Hebrew, the word goy means Gentile. Uh, but uh, goyim is uh, the word that is used for nations that are not uh, later on to be known as Israel. So, you know, we have Israel and people that are from Israel, and then everybody else is is a Gentile from the other nations. So, uh, but this suggests that he, title or Tidal, was probably the ruler of over several nationalities and city-states. Well, these four kings together had invaded the Jordan area some years before and had placed the cities of the Dead Sea under tribute. They came in, they took over uh, the land they, they, by force. Their armies held the people under some kind of military rule. And then they taxed the people. The people were to now pay their tribute to them. They were to pay their tribute in their goods and in their possessions and, and, uh, and their taxes as well. So, you know, I, I really don't want to say that this is the origin of the IRS, but you get the picture. All right. So they're having to pay this heavy tribute to stay alive. And the cities of the Jordan Valley had paid tribute for 12 years, but they rebelled in the 13th year, as the scripture tells us here, and they were invaded then again in the 14th year because of their rebellion. Now, in this invasion, the eastern powers unleashed their fury over the entire region from southern Syria to the Sinai, uh, brutally annihilating and plundering the area's cities. Now, we know that because archaeological uh, digs have, have, uh, have dug up from, from this whole area of, of, from the Mesopotamian Valley all the way down into the Sinai. Uh, they have dug up all of these sites that give testimony to the fact that this thing happened, that these things actually happened, and that there was this kind of devastation. A Middle Eastern archaeologist, Nelson Gluck, many years ago, documented the destruction left by these kings. And this is what he wrote in his findings. He said, I found that every village in their path had been plundered and left in ruins, and the countryside was laid waste. The population had been wiped out or led away into captivity, For hundreds of years thereafter, the entire area was like an abandoned cemetery, hideously unkempt, uh, with all its monuments shattered and strewn in pieces on the ground. That's quite devastating. That that was a a lot of terror that was brought down into this area by by the uh, confederation of four kings from, from the Euphrates Valley. But we're not to, you know, it's not so much that we have to feel sorry for the other region, the five kings. Uh, Remember that all of these nations were godless. And the attitude of war had already struck their hearts. In this case, one group was was seeking out land and, and possessions. The other was just seeking to stay alive. Now, one thing to mention before we move on is that if you do a very careful study of the names and the lines and the regions of the families mentioned battling each other here, the four against the five, you're going to discover that the first four names mentioned from the east are in the line of Shem. Does that bring to mind anything? They're from the line of Shem. Shem was the son of Noah. Shem was the son of 
that was to go forth, and out of Shem would come, would continue the line that was to lead to Messiah. Now, that line was, of course, in Abraham. So everybody else that came out of that line went out into other various regions. This one, in particular, was in the Euphrates Valley. But guess what? <laughs> they had gone far from God. They were far from the Lord, as far as you can go. And they're battling five kings. When you trace their origin, you realize they came from the, the line of Ham, the, another son of, of, uh, of Noah. So now, in essence, brother is fighting against brother. We forget that we, came, we all came from one people. Adam and Eve. Whatever was left of the eight before the flood and after the flood were still one people. We have various appearances, various distinctions, but we're all still people. And what this reminds us of is the condition of men's heart from the fall. Genesis 6 verse 5 says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. They forsook God. They forsook the knowledge of God. They forsook the presence of God and the power of God. They forsook everything that God said, I will be for you if you will believe in me and trust in me. The sad thing is that that still happens today. People are forsaking God. They're forsaking His presence. They're forsaking His, his uh, even His existence. But God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Don't forsake the love of God. Don't forsake the things that God has given to us for eternal salvation. Now, in the midst of this first recorded war in history, we again find Abraham, Abram, the man of God. But this time we see him responding to the invasion which resulted in the sacking of Sodom and the capturing of his nephew Lot along with all his possessions. This war, to some extent, became a very personal war for Abraham. He was living in peace where he was. But notice in verses 12 and 13 of our text, in Genesis 14, that word comes to him. It says, They took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, and departed. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew. By the way, first time the word Hebrew is mentioned in the, in the Scriptures. For he dwelt in the plain of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eskol and brother of Aner. And these were confederate with Abram. Uh, that's speaking of the one who actually escaped from Sodom. He was living in Sodom, but he was actually from the area where Abram was, was living at the time. But my question to you today is, what can we as believers in Jesus Christ glean from what is going on here? What can we take from what we see going on here with Lot? Let's start with Lot first. What can we take from the scriptures about Lot? Well, Lot was living in a place he was not to be in. Y'all have heard the expression, being in the wrong place at the wrong time? Y'all heard that? That person was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Well, Lot was in the wrong place. He wasn't supposed to be there. Remember what Lot did. Lot was given the choice by Abraham to go and take his flocks and his people and, and live in a, in a certain place. And, and, and Abraham told him, if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. But you choose. He gave, he gave Lot the opportunity to choose. And what did Lot do? Rather than look to the Lord, he looked to the land. And he saw the beautiful green valleys out there uh, in Jordan. And he says, well, that's where I want to go. But as he's going there, 
It tells us in the scriptures that he pitched his tent toward Sodom. And eventually, as we'll see, he decided to live in Sodom. And that's the problem. That's a big problem. Because in verse 12, what does it tell us? He dwelt in Sodom. He no longer was just looking towards Sodom. He was dwelling in Sodom. You see the problem? So Lot was living in a place he was not to be in. He was living among the very wicked people of Sodom. And he, and he was taken captive. You know, it's been said that those who are captivated by the world are easily taken captive. If you are captivated by the things of this world, then you will be easily taken captive by those very things. If you leave the things of the Lord like Lot did and walk off into the world, you can count on forming evil habits and lusts that are difficult to break. In fact, like Lot, a person won't get free from these lusts unless the Lord himself intervenes. We get to a place where all of a sudden we, we are just, you know, caught up in the world and, 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 and the tentacles of this monster are, are surrounding you. You can't break free. What do you do? You call on the name of the Lord. What does he do? He rescues you. But unless he intervenes, you face the consequences of your choices. This is why in 1 John chapter 2, verses 50-17, through 17, John says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Don't love the things in the world above your love for God. Remember that Jesus said these words. He says, unless a person hate his father, mother, sister, brother, you know, relative, you cannot be my disciple. I'm just kind of shortening and paraphrasing, but... But, but that's in essence what he said, unless you hate. And we think, why did Jesus say that? See, we have a totally different understanding and concept for the word hate. I taught this before that, you know, when we consider what the word hate in the scriptures is dealing with, with, with putting, second, putting things secondary to the, to the God that we're to, to love and serve. It is almost as if we hate things that we express our love for God. He doesn't want us to hate our mothers and fathers and our brothers and sisters and our, you know, our relatives. But he wants us to know that we need to love God more than them. Please understand that. So when John talks about this love, he says, love not the world. Don't love the world to the extent <clears throat> that you put those things above God. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And notice the rest of the verse. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Boy, that's pretty clear. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. How can you say you love the Lord if you only love the things of this world? And then he says in verse 16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Those three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, got their origin in the Garden of Eden. That's where they came from. When the serpent tempted Eve with the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The lust of the flesh. Oh, that fruit is good for nourishment. The lust of the eyes. It's a beautiful fruit. Probably the most beautiful fruit at all of the garden. The pride of life. Why did the Lord tell you not to eat of this? Because if you did, you'd be just like him. Don't you just want to be like him? The pride of life. To be like God. John says, for all that is in the world is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Better to do the will of God. Amen? Now, this brings to mind what it says in James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10 as well. Because now this deals with the, the very personal heart about these issues. God gives more grace, he says in verse 6. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. 
So he gives us a, a, a progression here of life. He says, submit, therefore, to God. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, your joy to, to heaviness. Now, you say, well, why is he saying that? Well, remember what we read at the beginning of chapter 4? He says, why are you fighting among yourselves? In verse 4 of this chapter, he calls them adulterers and adulteresses. So he says, you need to get right with God. You need to cleanse yourselves. Cleanse your hands, your sinners. Purify your hearts. Be afflicted. Mourn. Weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. The very attitude of humility is, is, is lacking today in the church. We've gotten this some, some kind of idea that we, oh, we need to be proud of this or proud of that. Listen, if you want to know something, the only thing that we need to glory in is in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because that tells us it is not about us, it's about Him. I've got nothing to glory of in myself. Only in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because on that cross, Jesus died for me. And He died for you. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. And he'll draw near to you. Are you doing these things, you see? Because this is, this is something we need to be doing. Submit yourselves to God. When you do that, then resist the devil. When you do that, then draw near to God. And guess what? He draws near to you. You've got to take these things seriously. And Lot didn't take it seriously. Go back to verse 12 again. I'm going to drive this point home again. Look at what it says. Remember at first Lot had merely pitched his tent towards Sodom. Now he's dwelling within the city. And he he became, as I mentioned last week, uh, 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 the very illustration of of Psalm 1-1. Blessed is he that walketh not with sinners. Nor stands in the path of the sinners. Nor sits in the seat of the scornful. What did he do? He pitched his tent towards Sodom. He moved towards Sodom. He, dwell, he dwells in Sodom. He did not take the seriousness of what God had given to him. He didn't take it seriously. We need to. Because notice what happens to him. Because of this invasion, he lost all his possessions and he became a prisoner of war and he became a slave. That's what happens to us when we forsake the truth of God and the Word of God. Because we're not spending time in the Word of God. We're not doing it every day. We're not taking the Word as if if it is food and living that life the way God wants us to live it, according to His Word, but also according to His power. How can we live it unless we surrender to the power of His Holy Spirit? So Lot is a prisoner of war and he's a slave. but But now what happens? An underdog emerges. And I'm not talking about Lot. I'm talking about... Abraham. There's notice in verses 13 and 14 of our text. It says, There came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, and an Amorite, brother of Eshcol, and brother of Aner, and these were confederate with Abraham. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. Abram forms an army. It's not a big army, 318 men. And, uh, you know, (laughs) the other nations were a little bit bigger. Not in the tens or even hundreds of thousands as other armies were later on. But certainly in the thousands, and I'm sure that uh, 318 was just a, a mere pittance of an army. But nonetheless, they had to be the underdog. There are a couple of things to note here, first of all. This is the first mention of anyone in the scripture being called a Hebrew. And it's fitting that 
Abram is the one to be called a Hebrew first, because the word Hebrew, as we have mentioned before, comes from the name Eber, but, but the root uh, itself means to have passed over, or have passed over. Abram had passed over the Euphrates. He was separated from Ur of the Chaldees, where he had lived from his kindred and from his father's house as the Lord commanded him. But more importantly, he crossed over uh, to the life of faith. Walking in the Spirit, living in the land of promise. Once he was an idolater, now he is a follower of God. Once he was dead in his idolatry, now he's alive in his faith in God. And it brings to mind Colossians chapter 1 verses 12 through 14 that says, Giving thanks unto the Father which has made us meet or fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us or transferred us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. He has passed us over from death into life, from darkness into light, from despair into love and hope, the love and hope that comes only from God. We have been passed over these things into the kingdom of God. Now secondly, notice that one of the captives escaped And he headed to see Abram for help to rescue his nephew Lot. Now he was undoubtedly a godless sodomite from from that region. Yet we know from the text also that he lived or or was from the people with whom Abram was uh, joined together with as far as, uh, uh, as a confederation of protection one for the other. But nonetheless, he sought out Lot's uncle. And it's always a tribute to a person's witness for Christ and for God when the ungodly seek them out in their times of crisis. Listen, this is something that will happen to you as a believer in Jesus Christ. It has probably happened to some of you already. Wherever it is that you work, or wherever it is that you go to school, wherever it is where you are in a public area and people know you, and they know that you're a Christian, a lot of times... Christians get, uh, you know, they have people speaking bad about him in front of them and behind them, you know. Uh, they say, oh, that guy's just a weird Christian, or this person's just a weird, you know, uh, you know, holy roller, or whatever, whatever they want to call you. They, they have all kinds of names for you. And, you know, you as a believer in Jesus Christ know it's going to happen, so, you know, you just rejoice and say, you know, I'm just going to live for the Lord. And, 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 and that's, that, that's who I represent here. But one day, Just as Nicodemus saw Jesus out at night, someone's going to come covertly or whatever and just come to you and say, can I talk to you about something? There's something different about you. I know that people make fun of you and all, but but I just need need to ask you to pray for something. I'm in this problem or in that problem or I have a family member that needs help or whatever, but I can come to you. Your testimony has brought that person to you. Your daily testimony of living for Christ, day in and day out, living in the love of God, showing the love of the Lord through your, through your humility, showing it through you know, your patience, your kindness, your goodness, you know, the fruit of the Spirit, will bring them to you. When you experience that, you realize, boy, does my testimony count. Does my public testimony count? It sure does. Be a good witness for Jesus Christ. Well, this is what we see here. Somehow, even in his backslidden condition, Lot spoke to this person who escaped. Go to my uncle Abraham, Abraham. Go to him. He's... He's a man who has faith in God. He trusts the God who created all things. I kind of did, but you know, he's better. Oh, by the way, you're given the opportunity to share the word of God too. You see, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, it tells us, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. That's not telling them, you know, go to that person or go to that person. You know what it's telling you? You give them the answer. This is the testimony you need to have. 
Now, at times, if something's very difficult or whatever, and you need to, uh, you know, lead them to someone else that believes and, and, and knows how to deal with those situations, that's okay too. But the important thing is that you are to give an answer. You give it with your life and with your words. In Hebrews 11, verses 1 and 2, we're all familiar with verse 1. It says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. But, but look at verse 2. It says, For by it, by faith, the elders obtained a good report, which means a good testimony. That was Abraham. His faith gave a good testimony. So this guy could have gone to any place, but he went to Abraham. And I find it interesting that it says in verse 14 that Abram heard his brother was taken captive. We know that Abram was Lot's uncle, but we also know from Scripture that Lot was a believer, backslidden though he may have been. And from that perspective then, Abram went after his brother in the faith. Well, you and I are called to do the very same thing. When a brother in the faith is in trouble, we need to go and rescue them. Time and again you see this in Scripture. James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Brethren, if, you, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. Scripture tells us that we are to do that even for believers. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 14 and 15. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men, see that none render evil for evil unto any man, but but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. I didn't add this, but, but you can look it up. Galatians 6, verse 1. If any man be overtaken with a fall, he that is spiritual should be the one to restore him. I'm just paraphrasing very quickly. But Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 calls us to rescue. We can look at Jude and tells us to rescue those who are in the fire. Pull them out of the fire. And Abraham was going to rescue his nephew Lot. And he's not going around saying, what did that dumb idiot do going to Sodom? Boy, look at what got him into no, you know, he doesn't talk about it. He just goes and gets him. Goes after him. Lot was a victim. And to quote that great theologian of the mid-20th century, Curly from the Three Stooges, Lot was a victim of circumstances. But he was a victim, actually, of the consequences of his own choosing. So he was a victim of his own circumstances and of the consequences of those circumstances. Lot was a victim, but Abraham was a victor. But Abraham was a victor before he even goes to get him. Why? Because he trusted God. And any person who trusts in God is a, is a victorious person. Even before we have to face the problems or the trials. We are victorious because we're not trusting in ourselves. We are trusting in the God who created us and made us and knows us better than we know ourselves. And so Lot was a victim, but Abraham was a victor. Lot was a captive. He had first become captivated by his lust, and now he's captive because he was in the wrong place. But Lot was a captive. I'm sorry, but, but Abraham was a conqueror. He was a conqueror before he went, and he was a conqueror after he went. Because we are always conquerors. As a matter of fact, the scriptures tell us that we are more than conquerors to him, through him who loved us, through Jesus Christ. So the difference of this, of of these distinctions, the difference is the preparation. The carnal man, which was Lot here, the carnal man was unprepared for warfare. The spiritual man, on the other hand, had been preparing. Look at verses 14 through 16. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. 
And he divided himself against them, and he and his servants by night. And then he smote them and, and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot, and his goods, and the women, and the women and also, and the people. Ab- Abram had trained 318 special forces from his household. These are the people that came either with him from Ur the Chaldees, Haran, or out of Egypt. And, and over the time, some of them had even grown up in his household, so they were young people as well. But nonetheless, he trained 318 special forces, and while Lot was indulging himself, Abram had been disciplining himself and discipling others. You see, if we're only indulging ourselves in the things of this world, where is our time to discipline ourselves in the Word of God and then to be able to disciple others? But Abram had been preparing. He had spent time at his altar worshiping God, praising God, learning from God, speaking to God, God speaking to him. So Abram and his special forces then go and do a reconnaissance mission in Hobah, some 100 miles north of Dan. Now they had traveled a long way to get there from where they were before. Dan is what is northern Israel, and they went beyond that. And then they were able to rescue Lot and the people, bringing back the goods that were taken by these eastern kings. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think God was warning Lot that his living in Sodom was not a good idea? (laughs) I would say so. I'm sure he was. But Lot does not listen and would eventually go back to Sodom to live. Folks, God does warn us. And if we refuse to listen, there are consequences to our failure in obeying. For Lot, he will eventually lose everything, even most of his family, because he refused to listen to the voice of God and to obey his leading. What are we going to do when God warns us? Don't you think it would be wise to listen? If God has that much love for you to speak to you in his time of rescuing you, should we not listen and say, Lord, I'm not going that way anymore. I'm not going to find myself in a place where you are not welcome. Unless you've sent me there with others to bring the good news of Jesus Christ. But you see, we know about Lot. The previous chapter made it clear that Abram was a man of peace. In fact, he was a meek and lowly, humble man who yielded his rights to Lot. That's a blessed characteristic that we need to have. But this chapter also points out that he was no pacifist. He lived in the midst of wars and rumors of wars, and he took the precaution to train his servants. The man of faith is a realist, not a passive coward or, or one incapable of leadership. You see, these are all marks of people of faith. We are to be a humble people, but we also need to be ready to stand. Do you all know why Ephesians chapter 6 is in the Bible? Because it tells us to put on the armor of God as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Because we fight battles every day. And we need to be prepared. And we need to stay in God's Word. You know, we don't miss too many meals, do we? But we put the greatest meal aside every day sometimes. Because we're too busy. We're just not so much into it. Well, you better get into it. Because God has words of hope and of strength and of life and of power for you in His Word. Because you are going to face trials. But don't let the trial overtake you like Lot did. Be ready with God's Word and with God's Spirit. When the crisis comes, Abraham draws new strength from God and he pursues victory. Folks, I want you to listen to what I just said. Abraham, when facing this trial, 
He drew strength from God, new strength from God, which means every day His mercies are new. We need to draw from those daily mercies. God's strength. And He pursued victory. What are we as Christians supposed to do? We are to pursue victory every day. We have a God that will bring us through to the victory. Are you with Him? All right, now listen. The Lord uses the underdog to put to shame the favorite. I'm not talking about the game. The Lord uses the underdog to put to shame the favorite. And here, Abram shows himself going from the underdog to being truly under God. He is under God's love, under God's mercies, under God's grace, under God's power, under God's spirit, under God's word. He is under God's hand, which is protecting him and keeping him and strengthening him. He is under God. We need to be under God's rule every day to pursue that victory in every situation. I want to close with this before we come to the table of the, uh, of, of the Lord today. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17, uh, I'm sorry, 27 to 31. 1 Corinthians 1, 27. Now listen carefully. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. In the world, the wise are the favorites. The foolish are the underdogs. Who are the foolish here? Hey, more hands than the first service. Okay. You guys win. Not that many hands are, you know. Hey, you know that as a believer in Jesus Christ, we're the foolish things of the world. We're the underdogs. Underdogs, folks. Listen. Israel, today, against how many people? How many countries? But they're God's people. He chose the underdog. Deuteronomy 7, he said, you know, use, you know, I didn't choose you because you were greater in number or because of any other thing. I chose you because I loved you. Gideon against the ten thousands of the Midianites or the thousands and thousands of the Midianites with 300 people. David against Goliath. I think there's a pattern here of who God chooses. Please don't apply it to the game today. Okay, thank you. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. Weak things? Every day I look in the mirror. And base things of the world and things which are despised has God chosen, yea, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing or to not things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. These are the things that Christ has become for us. Our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. That according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Do you have anything in and of yourselves to glory in today? That's why I said, I don't glory in anything but in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because there I die and he lives again for us when you take this bread and this cup today I want you to know that it is to remind us of the seriousness of the work of Jesus Christ the seriousness of the person and work of Jesus Christ dying on the cross suffering for our sins Shedding his blood for our forgiveness and rising again from the dead. It talks about the seriousness of sin, a daily attack by the enemy every day to get us off track. I want to take this bread and this cup to remind me I need to take a stand for Jesus Christ because he took a stand for me. Let's pray.